Good morning and welcome to another episode of the Chainergy Coffee Company podcast. This is the second episode of the year and uh, as I've said in my last episode, I'm going to refocus this podcast a bit more on the topic of international trade, the topic of finance management and a little bit also about the restart of the coffee company itself, like as a proper coffee company, not just as a virtual entity that I use to blog and um, and publish media content. So the topic of the episode of today is uh, non-tariff barriers and, uh, and Brexit. So essentially the aim is to start uh, to see a little bit what is happening with Brexit, to give a little bit of insight on what non-tariff barriers are and why they, they are important, why they are actually much more important than, than tariff barriers. And a little bit also how a business should manage the, the, tariff, the non-tariff barriers themselves. So what does it mean and how they should be considered and taken into account and essentially how to live with them. Because they're essentially a fact of life, especially for businesses operating in multiple jurisdictions. The trend seems to be in the increase of non-tariff barriers. Why? Because the tariffs themselves uh, have been uh, on the recess for the last 30-40 years. The various rounds of the GATT, the Global Agreement on Trade, which was the precursor of the WTO, have lowered substantially, at least in the developed world, the cost of tariffs. However, for a business that operates in multiple markets, non-tariff barriers have a cost. They can create uncertainty, they can create uh, bottlenecks to supply chains and especially in, in the current business culture which is to operate with the lowest possible level of inventory and to operate what is called the just-in-time model a non-tariff barrier is something that needs to be taken into account even in the decision of where to locate for example a storage facility uh, having a storage facility close to a port is usually a good idea because seaborne transport is the cheapest available. However, not all the ports are created equal, not all the custom officers are created equal. And so this is also one of the topics that we're going to briefly look at during this podcast. So first, a little bit of current event. Unless you've been living under a rock, you have probably noticed that Brexit has finally happened. So the European Union and the United Kingdom have signed an agreement for the divorce from the common market. So now there is a border between the UK and the rest of Europe. There have been plenty of articles describing the disaster, like with the long queue of trucks at Dover, with the red tape that is increasing for business operating out of the UK, and also a few anecdotal, funny tales of uh, people getting uh, their sandwiches taken away from them uh, at entering the UK because it's forbidden to import meat from the European Union to the UK. So ham is forbidden. Now this is a, a little bit of folklore uh, and it's probably a little bit of an exaggeration because of course it makes it, it gets in the news. However, 
for example, the, the case of the sandwich is, is an interesting one. Why a sandwich would be forbidden? Well, in this case, there is probably a certain level of stupidity in the custom officer that applies to the letter the, the disposition of this new agreement. However, the rule is there. It is not possible anymore to import, without going through a certain clearing process, to import meat products or animal products from the European Union to the UK, which means that for our British friends it's going to be more difficult to have access to German sausages or to French meat, or simply that they will have to pay more for this product, because getting through a custom clearance it has a cost, there is time, if these times are too long there is a problem of shelf life, I mean a piece of meat cannot be good forever unless it's frozen. So having a tariff on these products would add probably to the price, let's say a 10% increase would probably translate into an increase in the price of the product for the final consumer. However, it's a much more complicated for the supply chain managers that need to make the products arrive from one place to the other. It's a much bigger headache rather than the increased cost, because we're already probably talking, when we're talking about import, we're talking about products with decent margin and probably products that have already a certain markup built into it. So someone will absorb part of the price increase. It's not going to be passed entirely to the consumer. But it's a much bigger headache to get the product actually on the shelf. So, is this uh, state of affair going to last forever? So is going to be the UK becoming uh, an off-limit territory for exporters? No, because of course there is also a learning curve for the custom officers. Probably in the long run the government will have to assign more resources to the Her Majesty Revenue and Custom Authority, so hire more custom officers, increase the digitalization, because a lot of it, I mean, it's amazing how much of that is still made in paper. So there are ways for the UK to speed up the process if there is the political will, because that's also another point. There has to be a political will to speed up the process and to make the process of importing good seamless. At the moment, and for the foreseeable future, every business operating out of the UK will have to live with these uh, delays, with this kind of uh, uncontrollable variable that is the bottlenecks at the point of entry. However, the bottlenecks are only part of the non-tariff barrier. There is actually one case, a historical case, which is very famous, back in the early 80s, when uh, probably was mid-70s, when the Japanese TVs were invading the European market, France, at the time there was not the common market, France decided, instead of putting tariffs, which were a little bit complicated to enforce in any way, the Japanese were very good at going around tariffs by dumping the prices of their goods, they decided to assign one point of entry for Japanese TV in the Pyrenees. 
So, uh, to silence the protest from Japan that France was making the access to the market very difficult, they said, no, no, we have assigned to you one custom agency all for your products in the Pyrenees. So you will have to uh, unload the ship probably in Spain, which at the time was not even part of the common market, track your products to this custom office and then you will be able to enter into France. Why it was that? Because at the time France had their national champions in producing TV, which was uh, Thompson, if I'm not mistaken. And that's actually a very good example of a policy which seems quite straightforward, which was actually designed to protect their national champion via a non-tariff barrier. And non-tariff barriers, uh, there are a number of them, and I will try to give us a, a fast overview. Non-tariff barriers are a very costly affair. According to a study that was published by the UNCTAD, it's a UN agency, non-tariff measures and non-tariff barriers amounted more or less at 1,4 trillion of dollars. That's pretty significant. That's a pretty significant figure. 1,34 trillion of dollars of cost overall worldwide, and the cost for a company in terms of uh, having uh, a trade compliance department, of making sure that all uh, its products are in accordance with the, with the trade measures, so licensing, importing, quotas, this, is, uh, this can be a very significant cost and a very significant headache, also because in some jurisdictions the cost of non-complying with, with non-tariff measures can be pretty steep and can lead sometimes to criminal prosecution. Hence, uh, this, this topic of, of trade compliance is becoming more and more uh, a topic for companies. In the energy business, for example, there are a lot of requirements. I'm saying energy business, but we, you, you can read oil and gas in this case, but mining is the same in terms of certificates of origin, in terms of uh, Excises, excise taxes, custom duty. So, for example, a product that is at sea or is in what you call a bonded warehouse, so a warehouse that, even though is physically on shore, is legally still offshore. So, the product sits in a warehouse, let's say in Rotterdam, but it's not imported into the Netherlands. The way that is imported and the way that is nationalized, so it's it's brought onshore changes a lot the cost of excises, which are the duties like mineral oil tax, VAT, all these things change substantially, whether it's imported, for example, as agricultural diesel, I mean the same product, which is diesel, can be marine diesel, and it has a certain treatment, can be agricultural diesel, and there's another treatment, can be kerosene, so JT1, so for aviation, and that's another treatment. So you start to understand that a non-tariff barrier is not a joke, even though we're not talking about uh, a direct cost, so 10% of the value of the products that you're importing, depending on where it comes from, and depending on where it's added, it changes quite a bit 
how this has to be treated. Then when it comes to products coming from the United States, because it's funny that the United States is one of the champions of the abolition of non-trade, non-tariff barriers for other countries. But when it comes from products coming from the United States or products that have technological content coming from the United States, there are a host of rules on what can be exported, where and how, for example, it would be impossible to export even a video game which is made with microchips that have uh, IP originating in the United States into Iran. Doing so would require to apply for a permit directly to the US, even if it's a Japanese company importing into Iran via the, another Gulf state, still this Japanese company would have to apply for a permit from the United States. Failure to get a permit would essentially break embargo rules and the United States is very serious about its, uh, its embargo rules and its uh, sanction list. So you start to understand even now, because even something like a product like base chemical if it has been refined using products coming from the United States or a technology that originated in the United States, might incur in limitation to the export or to the import in certain countries and hence inevitably makes the company that is trading this product liable legally and potentially also criminally. So, it's a fairly serious matter. Um, in terms of what we were talking about in the beginning, so the effect of, on Brexit, this is a, a good, let's say, educational story for anyone thinking that being outside of the EU might be a good idea. Today, any business operating in the EU has the advantage of reaching a market of a certain size and a fairly rich market and has the ability to uh, leverage competencies that are spread in the continent. So for example, let's take a car, Volvo, Swedish car. Volvo has the ability to buy automotive products, it can be buy tires in Italy at Pirelli, it can buy uh, electronics in Belgium, it can buy chassis in the Netherlands, it can buy glasses in Czech Republic, so it has the ability to optimize the cost and the quality of its product basically only on industrial consideration. So I just buy the best product for the money that I'm able to spend. In a situation where the market is not a single market anymore, so imagine the situation, for example, that car makers in the UK will face now, this changes because, yes, I might have a better product in the Netherlands compared to what I might get in the UK, if I can get the product in the UK, but I'm not sure when I'm going to have my product delivered, so I can either buy more of the product and store it, and that will have a cost, because I will have to have a storage facility and investment in working capital, so investment in inventory. Or, simply, I might not be able at least in the short term, to supply my business with the parts that it needs. 
the idea for protection is that this might spur the birth of a new industry in the UK itself that will generate the same product or a better product in the long run that's a net gain for the UK. However, it rarely works this way. Protectionism has been proven time and time and again not to work too well in this, in this scenario. And this is just one example. Services, because nowadays a lot of the exports that goes between countries is essentially services. So imagine being able to uh, use a banking facility in a place like London, or imagine a business that is located in Poland that needs to raise capital. The Polish capital markets are not well developed for various reasons, chiefly amongst the, the fact that it's a reasonably new, okay, now we're talking about more than 20 years, but it's still a reasonably new uh, capitalist economy. So the easiest way for a Polish business that needs to grow is to look for capital and look for advice in the most developed market in the world, which is the UK, or one of the most developed markets in the world. Under the rules that are under negotiation regarding financial services, that might not be the case anymore with the damage for the UK, because the city of London will lose business, and with the damage for Poland and for the European Union, because companies that used to have the ability to use the services of British banks, or anyway of banks based in the UK, they will not have access, at least in the short-medium term, to the same services without having an increase of cost, because of course, British Bank, or anyway, banks based in the UK will be able to relocate some of their activities to Europe, but this will lead inevitably to an increase in cost, and hence, more friction, more inefficiency, and these are costs that are not really productive. So the damage is actually pretty steep. Anyway, let's have now, a little overview on what are the main types of non-tariff barriers. So, first we should a little bit understand what are technically non-tariff barriers. I think from what we have said so far, we have more or less an idea, but if we want to really define the non-tariff barrier, is any measure, any measure, other than custom duties, so other than cost levied directly on the value of the goods themselves, which restrict or impede the importing of foreign produced goods or services. So any measure can be a protectionist measure. For example, in Europe, it has been reformed heavily in the last few years, one of the main policies that was uh, delegated to the European Union was the so-called CAP, Common Agricultural Policies, which is a system of subsidies for the, the, the agricultural sector, which help uh, farmers in case of bad years or they help, they sustain their, the price of their products or they lower the cost 
for example, it's, it's famous anecdotal, the, the mountain of butter that in Germany was destroyed every year because the, the European Union would assign some quotas, quotas of production. These quotas allowed the, the, the butter producer to essentially have a higher price because you, you restrict supply. And hence, whatever was produced on top of the quotas was essentially destroyed. Or it was dumped on markets outside the EU. So you understand that this is also an import barrier because a producer of butter that is, in, that is in a different jurisdiction might not be able to compete with this market that is dragged by the subsidies of the European Union. Another example, labeling requirements. For example, within the European Union, the labeling requirements for food are fairly thorough, are fairly heavy. They favor inevitably big business because a small producer has a much higher cost compared to the volume of production that it does to have an extensive disclosure or the extensive disclosure that is required for, for food products, especially from animal or so-called biological source. So, for example, a business located in North Africa that produces tomatoes, which are as good as the tomatoes produced in Southern Italy, might not be able to enter the market because the cost of having the proper, per the proper disclosure, or even the ability to have the proper disclosure, might be outside its ability. So when we think about non-tariff barriers, we don't need to think only about something that directly impedes the flow of good. We need to think about potentially everything. Licensing agreements. Licensing agreement is typically something that impedes the free movement of goods. Typically, I was making the example of the United States. When I need to license a certain uh, technology and I need to pay the license and apply for the license, this inevitably increase my, increases my cost base and makes my production less, pro, less competitive than my, for example, US-based counterparts. Embargoes. An embargo can be uh, a very effective non-tariff non barrier. In that case, I simply forbid the ability for a country to import or to export a certain good. The most famous was, was probably the embargo on oil that was placed on Saddam Hussein's Iraq back in, uh, after the, the first Gulf War. But embargoes are something very common and they are something that happens almost every day. I mean, what the United States is doing with China, for example, with Huawei, is essentially an embargo. An embargo on technology transfer which makes it impossible or which, which makes it difficult, at least in the medium and short term, for Huawei to compete in the smartphone market because it cannot source the, the chip, so the, the, the processors that are needed for its smartphone from US-based suppliers or from suppliers that use technology which has originated in the United States. Another example of non-trade barriers, non-tariff non, non barriers, is uh, deposits. In certain countries, it is mandatory to deposit to the central bank of the country an, an amount equal to the value 
of goods imported for the time in which the transaction takes place. This can be made easy by certain financial products, like a standby letter of credit, a guarantee. But typically also this can be a fairly substantial impediment because the business, for example, let's imagine that the European Union requires businesses importing uh, uh, goods from China to deposit to deposit an amount of money equal to the value of uh, the products that the, the business is importing, because without sanctions, not every business might have the ability to finance double the value of the goods that is importing. So also this can be, an, and it's actually a fairly common one. Uh, so essentially, these are more or less the most common, the most common kind of non-tariff barriers. And then there are the barriers which are in a way functional, meaning, again, if I need to import something from overseas, I'm going, probably going to import it via either airplane, depending on the goods, if they're high value goods, I can probably do via airplane or via sea. Not every port is born equal. A port like Rotterdam has all the facilities and has all the ability to receive goods. It has the storage capacity to have bonded warehouses, so where I can deposit my goods for the time that I clear the customs. A port like, for example, the port of Riga in Latvia does not have as much capability to receive goods from from foreign countries. Why I'm, I'm citing Riga? Because my company was based in Latvia. It was based in Latvia not for tax reasons, but for the simple fact that I was supplying mostly the Nordic countries. And so it made sense to choose the jurisdiction with the lower costs compare uh, and the easiest way to reach my markets, which are mainly Finland, Sweden, Denmark, and to a lesser extent, Poland and the Baltic countries, Actually, I've chosen Latvia because I was hoping also to get my goods into Russia, but that never came into fruition because entering Russia is not for the faint of heart and not for the official, let's put it this way, not for the official non-trade barriers, but for other kind of non-trade barriers, which I'm not going to get too much into. So, for example, my initial decision to locate my facilities, so my storage facility, because I was importing only coffee green beans, which are fairly easy to store and to, uh, to transport, for, fell into Latvia because it was the, lower cost, the lowest cost location. Now I'm thinking about Estonia for other reasons. Estonia is more expensive than Latvia. However, the let's say, the flexibility and the ability of the customs to deal with products coming from overseas, at least from what I gather from my clients and from my friends that operate in the same area, are much more easy. The, the, the custom officers are more cooperative. They speak better English, which is not the case in Latvia. And so, inevitably, is a more attractive location. You have a higher cost, not as high as in Finland, but higher than uh, 
in the other, in the other uh, Baltic countries, but you also have a reduction in the friction and you have a reduction in the lead time to get your goods onshore and hence to send them to the client. So, for example, in my case, I, had, I decided at a certain stage to have my goods delivered from Guatemala to Rotterdam, which added a certain amount of uh, cost, because then from Rotterdam I would have to transport to Latvia and then from Latvia back to my final customers. So that was, for example, one of the mistakes that I made. I looked only at the cost and I didn't consider, it's a typical beginner mistake, I didn't consider the inefficiency of the custom authority I was dealing with. With this, I don't want to say that the Latvian custom authority is not cooperative, they're extremely cooperative. There is a problem of knowledge because a product needs to be classified. Once it's classified, it's subject to certain import duties, it's subject to, a certain rules and, to certain rules and regulations on the certificate of origin. And so the paperwork that it's a daily occurrence for a custom officer in the Netherlands is not a daily occurrence for a custom officer in Latvia. Not only that, the number of staff that is available for businesses operating in the Netherlands is much higher, even if more expensive, than the number of custom officers who deal with the, with the imports in Latvia, which is also logical, because if you just look at a map, Latvia is on the far side of the Baltic Sea. It doesn't generate even a fraction of the traffic that, that the port of Rotterdam generates, where practically vast majority of the goods imported into Europe go at a certain stage through the port of Rotterdam, also because once the stuff is offloaded in Rotterdam, it can be transported also via river inside Europe, in Germany, up to Switzerland. For example, a lot of the fuel the fuel products that are imported into Switzerland go along the Rhine or are transported via rail from Rotterdam to Basel and, and inside the country. So, if you're a business that needs to cater to a certain market, being close to the market is one consideration. So, being close to the market which you want to serve but also having the flexibility and the ability to have a seamless or as seamless as possible import process is another very important consideration that even though it's difficult to value in terms of, uh, of cost, uh, because it's difficult to say like, okay, to offload my container of green beans in the Netherlands, it takes between 24 and 48 hours, in Latvia, it can take from 72 up to a week. Now, for my green beans, that was not much of, a, of an issue because first I was buying and selling green beans, so I didn't have to process them. And if I planned my supply with a little bit of slack, which I always did, that was not too much of a problem. However, I had a few cases in which I got loads stacked and the client was waiting for its loads and then the client in the end canceled the order and said, look, I need to roast my coffee, I need to supply my clients, so I will buy my beans from someone else at a higher cost. And the risk then becomes also lose the client. So, 
when designing your supply chain, it is important to consider what are the possible bottlenecks and hence choose partners, and these are custom agents, and locations, which makes it easier to not necessarily to have a faster process, because not for everyone a faster process is necessary. Like imagine you're importing cardboard to produce packaging. Cardboard doesn't have a problem of shelf life. The problem might be that if it takes too long, you have to keep a substantially higher level of raw materials in your stock, and so the cost of financing the stock becomes higher, and inevitably it's in your bottom line. However, the most important thing is to be able to forecast reliably the time that it gets from your supplier to your warehouse, because once you have supplied, you have calculated this time, you can structure your level of inventory and your production process accordingly. So, which is the right way to structure it depends on the business. Uh, a business that relies on a just-in-time value chain inevitably will put more emphasis on the speed of delivery. A business that is cost-conscious will put more emphasis on the total cost of having the goods supplied. In the case, for example, of commodities, inevitably the cost is a much more important topic because commodities tend to have very low margin. I wrote an article back in the day on coffee itself and the margin for the coffee trader is usually a few cents on the dollar, so having a higher cost might eat your margin very fast. Vice versa, if you are in fresh food, in, in importing fresh food, speed also becomes a very important consideration because you have a problem of shelf life. Now, all these things seem obvious, like why are you telling us these very obvious things? Because I bumped my head myself against these problems. Now, in my vision for the new Chainergy Coffee Company that I'm working at, I want to integrate vertically, meaning I want to start to roast my own coffee. At that point, and also, and want to start to do a few other additional product, coffee and cocoa based, then at that point, inevitably, also the time becomes a much more important issue. And more than that, it becomes an important issue in case I decide to export, which will be the case because I'm going to try to enter also the Swiss market. It becomes a consideration because there is the once you roast the coffee, you start to have an issue of shelf life. Even though coffee seems like a very long shelf life product, that's not really the case for specialty coffee. It's not really the case for the coffee that I have in mind, which once roasted, after a few weeks, it loses a lot of its taste, it loses a lot of its uh, organic characteristics. So inevitably, considering the speed at which I can get the product to market becomes an issue. Now, I'm not planning, other than Switzerland, which is still part of the European economic area, I'm not planning to enter markets like the UK, 
even though the UK, if Brexit hadn't happened, might have been a very interesting market. One of the best specialty roasters that I know, that I tried to supply, not, not successfully, is based in the UK, it's one of the oldest roasters in Europe. And this business, I mean, I talked to them a few months back when I was trying to sell them a load of my Guatemalan, my Guatemalan coffee. They are scared because 20 to 25% of the revenues was actually generated between France, Netherlands and Belgium. And now these markets might be less receptive to their products and hence there is a good fair chance that they might lose market share and when you are in the specialty coffee losing market share is a problem because you're not competing on volumes you're not competing against Nestlé or Lavazza you're competing for a very niche market if one quarter of your niche is shut down what might happen is that your business loses its viability as a going concern meaning it might fail to survive so to wrap up a little bit this conversation on this uh, on this topic of non-tariff barriers what can we foresee for the future uh, the future looks like uh, after a certain trend in the decrease of non-tariff barriers they're back into fashion especially in important markets like china and they are going to cost a lot so probably they're going to be a little bit of a break of the sand in the engine of globalization what can you do as a business to manage them well you need to structure your value chain in a way that the impact and cost of your non-tariff barrier is minimized so choose your location wisely choose your custom agents wisely because a bad custom agent is worse than any barrier in the world not not to mention that even if it's your custom agent to do the mistake in front of the custom authority you are responsible for their mistakes so in case there is a, a criminal prosecution it's not going to be only the custom agent that is going to have problems for that as a citizen this is a diff difficult call because a lot of citizens believe that it's a duty for a government to shield its industries from unfair competition and that's true to a point however uh, governments make a very lousy uh, actor in picking up the right um, industry to protect and very often this decision and it's the case of brexit are politically motivated why Bre during the brexit there was so much focus on fisheries and so little focus on financial services because the, the, the politicians essentially understood that that sector would bring more votes is it a good thing for the uk as a whole if the city of london is shut off the european market no because a lot of the taxes that the UK government receives are generated by banks and are generated by financial services and also a lot of the current account surplus in not the current account the capital account surplus of the UK is generated because of the activity of the city so 
uh, as a citizen you have always to be very concerned and very attentive on the political motivation that are behind certain declaration we want to protect our jobs very often by restricting trade maybe you protect some job in a certain industry but overall as a country you lose and so you lose more job than the one you protect and you also need to look always in the details because even a plug meaning the little thing that you put in the wall to get electricity in the socket to charge your phone can be a non-tariff barrier because putting a reasonable requirement on the electricity grid essentially favors domestic operators. But the fact that it favors domestic operators doesn't mean that it favors necessarily you as a consumer and then as a taxpayer and as a citizen. And then there is, and this is more my ideal of free trade, I'm a staunch supporter of free trade, Trade is the best form of help for developing economies. Subsidies, charity, this is all very important. But if we want developing economies to get out of poverty and hence also to be able to afford to buy our own products, the only way is to allow them to trade, to build their own economic structure, to participate in the markets, and that's millions of times more efficient and more just than just dedicating the spare change because when we talk about how much is dedicated to foreign aid in a government account is essentially spare change even for a country like the United States which pays a few billions of dollars it seems like a very huge amount but in terms of the impact on the federal budget is peanuts, and that's true for most developed countries, contrary to this kind of uh, uh, pocket change, giving developing economies the ability to compete, essentially, it's the best way to ensure their prosperity. And ensuring that their prosperity is in our interest, because it means less immigration, it means less strife, it means less war. Commerce was always and is always going to be a force for good because it's always going to be the best way to ensure that countries do not go at war within each other and it's always going to ensure the movement together with capital, people and goods of ideas. Movement of ideas means better life for everyone. This is everything for, for this uh, uh, episode on non-tariff barriers. I hope you enjoyed it and please as usual feel free to comment, to reach out and to let me know which is your opinion on my podcast. It's not a given that I will care but please feel free. Thank you very much and I wish you a great day.